welcome to Talking Beats with Daniel Lalchuk. That's me, and I'm so glad you're here. If you like what we do, I'd love it if you gave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're so compelled, write a review. That really helps, and maybe tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. If you want to get involved in the program, visit our website, talkingbeats.com, and click Support the Show, where you can make either a one-time or a recurring donation. As we look to continue having cliche-free conversations of real substance with a diverse range of the world's most compelling people, your support is so appreciated, especially as we look to expand and increase our offerings. If you have a question, comment, or thought, find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or if you wish to reach out directly, email me at daniel at talkingbeats.com. I'm so glad you're here. Let's get on with today's conversation. On today's program, nature writer, Mary Roach. She's the author of beloved books such as Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, Spook, Science Tackles the Afterlife, and Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. She's just now out with a new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. What's to be done about a jaywalking moose? A grizzly bear caught breaking and entering. A murderous tree. The answers, as Mary Roach discovers, are best found not in jurisprudence, but in science. The curious science of human-wildlife conflict. A discipline at the crossroads of human behavior and wildlife biology. Mary Roach, with whom, as you will hear, I have certain things in common, brings a humor and a lightness to some very serious subjects. She joins me right now. I couldn't be more thrilled. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. And Mary Roach, I'm holding the book here in my left hand called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Nature doesn't mean to break the law, but how does nature break the law and why the hell should we care? Well, you know, these are laws that we wrote for people. Like thou shalt not, well, that's biblical, never mind. Um, you know, uh, you shouldn't kill people or steal from things, steal from people, or uh, you know, jaywalking is illegal, littering, trespassing. And, and animals do all these things. You know, they're not committing crimes. They happen to be breaking our laws, but they're not committing crimes. They're just animals being animals and trying to find something to eat, trying to find a place to build a nest that's warm, you know, in your attic. Seems like a good place. Uh, or they're just trying to get from point A to point B and somebody put a freeway in their way. So they're, uh, you know, they're, they're hardly lawbreakers, though they break our laws. Does that make any sense? Uh, that makes some sense. Yeah. So what is it about you and animals? I mean, what, why do you, where's the fascination? You just like the natural world or you like animals? You like studying what they do that's kind of kooky? Uh, I think everybody likes everybody likes animals, don't they? Do you know anybody who doesn't like animals? I that would be an interesting book. Would maybe that's your next one? I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I, I I write books. It's what I do, and I have written a lot of books that have had to do with the human body or the human body in strange circumstances. And I, um, I I wanted to take a bit of a break from the body. I've used up a lot of that terrain. There's only so much body there for me to play with. So I uh, just um, thought I would head off in a different direction. And um, human-wildlife conflict is a branch of science I had never heard of. I mean, there are you know symposiums and textbooks and people who make this their whole profession. And anytime I come across a field of science that I'd never heard of, I get kind of excited. And I think, well, what 
what's in there? What do people do? And plus animals, you know, animals, they're, they're hilarious. They're um, vexing. They're interesting. So there you go. And that's where I, <laughs> that's kind of how I ended up writing this book. It, uh, and, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, um, I'm not an animal freak. You know, I, I mean, I like animals, but I, it wasn't a particular passion for animals that led me to the book any more than it was a passion for dead bodies that led me to stiff. That'd be kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> it, this is a safe space. You can admit anything you want here. <laughs> Don't worry. Oh, okay. I've got some in the cellar right now. <laughs> One of them's pretty ripe. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm looking at the chapters here and, uh, you know, they're sort of, sort of, Funny chapter names, but but not everything that happens is is funny. I mean, the mall cops, malls, M A U L, crime scene forensics when the killer isn't human, uh, breaking and entering and eating. How do you handle a hungry bear? The elephant in the room, manslaughter by the pound. So, <laughs> they're they're sort of cute, charming chapter titles. But but what was this all about? Okay, you like animals, not any more than the next guy down the block. But you you wanted to. To see what you, you sort of get into their world in a in a odd way. Well, it it's a look at uh, how do we avoid these conflicts or prevent these conflicts that we have uh, when animals step into our business. Because once they're there and once they're pissing people off, it doesn't typically end well. So um, you know, it, 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 it's it's a look at. Uh, some of the ways that science has helped out with that, and and also just you know different cultures, how do they handle it? Uh, it's um, it's just an exploration of a world I knew nothing about, which is what all my books ultimately are. So let's talk about elephants. What did you learn about elephants that you didn't know? Uh, I didn't know anything about elephants, um, and I still don't know that much about elephants. But what I do know about is uh, the trouble that they get into in regions of India where they exist in fairly large numbers. Uh, 500 people a year are killed by elephants in India. I mean, India is a very populous nation, but that's nonetheless, that's a, that's a lot of people. Compare that to here where every year bears kill between one and three people. Uh, 500, that's a lot of people being killed by an animal that honestly, when I was growing up, you know, my reference points were Babar, you know, the elephant the gentle elephant wearing spats and uh, Dumbo and National Geographic, which, you know, they were portrayed as kind of gentle, wise animals. So um, I headed off to India where there's a researcher from the Wildlife Institute of India who goes around to villages in the north of India where these animals, it's on the the elephant corridor where they they migrate through on an annual basis and uh, have tended to kind of get stuck. In, in the recent years because of encroachment of humans. So when they're stuck uh, in a region and they start running out of food, they tend to uh, go into farmer's fields, which pisses off the farmers, understandably. They're, these are subsistence farmers, so they'll run out into the field at night when there's like six, eight elephants in the field and the elephants disperse and panic and the people are sometimes drunk and often panicked. And, you know, as my mother liked to say, somebody's going to get hurt. So uh, what this researcher does is, is uh, train people. There are elephant response teams who are called in to, uh, first of all, to try to head off elephants. And, and um, if they do enter agricultural plot, uh, they know how to 
steer them away without causing panic in a way that avoids uh, the kind of closeness that often leads to somebody getting hurt or killed. This researcher you keep referencing is named, uh, sorry for the pronunciation, Dipanjanaha. Uh, and yes. um, not bad, right? Spot on. Spot on. As you write, he locks up his office, slaps a government of India on-duty placard on a hired four-wheel drive, and heads out on a sort of awareness camp road trip. This year, his cousin Aritra is coming along as his assistant, and I'm, meaning Mary Roach, is in the car too. We're starting in North Bengal, confusingly a region of West Bengal, where each year wild elephants kill on average 47 people and injure another 164. 47 people per year in an area the size of Connecticut. Outside yeah, the car window. See? Yeah, well, exactly. And and then you, you sort of paint this uh, picture of plantations that grow tea, marigold farms, uh, rice plants. Uh, I like that scent in the earth like toothbrush bristles. Uh, it all sounds very, very pretty. And then elephants. What happens? Like I said, they're moving through the land and they tend to go across the top of India. And they are looking for food, particularly if they get isolated in a pocket of land and so somebody growing crops i mean the elephant doesn't know this is somebody's property somebody's somebody's food so elephants and even if they're not eating anything uh, six elephants walking across your farmland it does a tremendous amount of damage so uh and if there isn't somebody on hand an elephant response team as i mentioned if there isn't that then people tend to run out and do stupid things and uh, sometimes someone gets fatally injured. So that's what can happen. When you set out to write this book, what did you have in mind? I, I, obviously, all this travel was done prior to the pandemic. So what did you have in mind in terms of the animals you wanted to study, in terms of the places you wanted to go? Was it place or animal that, that drove you know, how you were sifting through. I mean, God knows there's a lot of different animals that cause <laughs> yeah. all sorts of problems. I mean, did you just throw the dart? Uh, no, for me, it's um, not so much the animal or the place, but what's going on. What's going to be something I can, uh, a scene I can step into, uh, something I can see, observe, something I can describe for people. So it's not just a report um, from afar. I, I want there to be color and description and dialogue and surprise and action. When I start a book, I'm doing a lot of emailing people all over the world going, hey, working on this book, just sort of getting going. What are you going to be doing in the next couple of years? And can I tag along? That is, if it sounds relatively, I mean, that's actually two emails. <laughs> what are you going to be doing? And then if there's something, uh, A, that seems interesting and be that the researcher wouldn't mind me pestering them for a day or a week, um, then that tends to make the cut. So uh, yeah, you're right. There's thousands of animals, uh, species, that, that I don't know if I'd say thousands, probably, that uh, irritate people and, and get up in their worlds. So there, was a, there were a lot, of, uh, a lot of possibilities, but finding something that's going to be going on, you know, because so, I, I like to, you know, to, I like to, I typically cover scientists and what they do. So um, uh, hopefully trying to find something positive, something that might be a better solution to some of these conflicts. Uh, so, um, and there's some, you know, some things I wanted a mix of uh, things that Americans are familiar with, but also uh, I was curious about India because, Culturally, they're a little bit different in their attitudes towards some of these animals. 
So uh, that kind of sums up how I make these decisions. It is a, an ever-changing. I mean, I, I may be eight months into a book uh, and discover something I hadn't heard about and decide to include that and bump something else. You know, it's kind of a evolving organism. Talk about something close to home. Okay, we touched on elephants. What what that this audience, say an American audience, or say where you are up in the Bay Area in California, what what's relatable? You know, what is something that, that you were surprised about, that you learned about, that you discovered, you know, that isn't an elephant or a tiger, but, you know, maybe something we have in our backyard? Well, sure. You know, in, depending on how you define backyard, we deal with bears here in California, black bears. But just in my own backyard, uh, I've got, and this is an urban area, I've got raccoons, possums, squirrels. I've seen a fox down on Park, Park Boulevard, uh, skunks roof rats. So uh, I, I think there's a tremendous <laughs> number of species you can find literally in your own backyard. So some of those I talk about. Um, uh, cougars also, we've got those not far from here. Uh, so I think those are more relatable for people. And so those are in, those are in the book too, in, in different, uh, different elements of the work being done with those animals. Why is it fun for you to cover science? Talk about how you got into science as a as a, was it as a kid or later in life. Yeah, I uh, I didn't take any science in college really. I took astronomy because it was a gut, you know, it was an easy class. Same here. Yeah, and I could tell you here's here's <laughs> the sum total of what I remember: the moons of what is it, Jupiter, Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto. There, that's all. <laughs> That's, that's pretty all. good. My sum total of my science education. Well, that, that's that, that's farther than I got. I was a you know a, in music school uh, as a cellist trying to fulfill a science requirement, and boy was that class hard. That was really hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fortunately, Wesleyan didn't have any requirements, so um, I escaped that. But I, but I, uh, I, but and I think it's it's kind of tragic because I mean, when in high school, I did have one really great teacher and he was the physics teacher and I learned a lot and I retained a lot. He was funny. He made things relatable and approachable. And is this at Hanover high school or? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We Warren went to the DeMont. same high school, the same really? high was, school. Was Mr. DeMont teaching? No. Shoot. <laughs> he was good. That man was good. So when I worked on packing for Mars, which had to do with astronauts and all the weird challenges of putting bodies up in space where they, humans up in space where they didn't evolve, I wish that I'd had a teacher, a biology teacher like him or a chemistry teacher like him because science is, is actually incredibly interesting. You know, I mean, the, the science is the whole world around you. It's your body, you know, it's everything you eat your computer. I mean, it, it can't be boring because it is the world, but I didn't, I just didn't have a good, uh, I didn't, I didn't have the kind of exposure to it in, in high school that with the exception of my beloved physics teacher. I had uh, such a bad understanding and bad appreciation, zero appreciation for maths and sciences until this podcast. And now I've had the opportunity to have on the best physicists in the world and the great mathematicians and they explain it in a way i always say yeah. god i wish i wish you were my seventh grade teacher i wish you were my pre-algebra teacher uh yeah, same. because you know there's a real i can suddenly see oh my god this is amazing it's not just uh 
interesting or practical or whatever it goes beyond it's it's even moving the way some of them speak about it uh and i had good teachers i I didn't have bad teachers but it didn't do it for me same yeah I, i i my teachers weren't bad but um and it's partly my fault because at hanover high school they at that time you could take the honors science or the easy science and i opted for the easy science and people who took mr hutchins class which was the honor science loved it, loved him, went on to medical school. You know, they, I mean, they were uh, also in chemistry too. There was Bruce Kolasike. Did you have him? Anyway, I don't know, maybe he's retired. Again, I didn't, I took the easy class and it, it, it just, there wasn't the same passion being projected by the teachers that I had. And I regret that. I wish I'd taken the, the honors class. Yeah. I say that now, maybe it would have been really, really hard and I would have hated it. Well, I don't know what I think I took the normal one, but I wasn't there. Learn from my mistakes, as I guess everybody should, hopefully. Um, so, so here we are. He, here's you wanting to write about science. Uh, went to Wesleyan, right down the down the river from here, two states away. Um, and uh, and what you woke up one day saying, I, I want to be a science writer. What does that happen? Mm, no, no. I I gra- well, I graduated with a liberal arts degree in the middle of a recession and. What could I do? You know, I applied for some jobs, didn't get them. I ended up being a freelance uh, copy editor, proofreader, copy editor. That's not a career I'm well suited for. You have to be very detail minded and you have to really care that something was capitalized differently in chapter two versus chapter eight. And I'm the kind of person's like, yeah, who cares? Nobody's going to notice. It's just you can't have that mindset as a copy editor. So I I did it for a while. I didn't do it well. And then I thought, you know, I'd rather write this shit than try to clean it up. Because a copy editor, for the types of publishers that I was working for, one of them was a military press, and there were a lot of memoirs of Vietnam and World War II. And they were, it wasn't the cleanest writing, and I was having to kind of do a pretty intensive copy editing. And I was just I, like, I'd rather just, I'd rather just write it in the first place. So I thought, well, I don't know, maybe writing. So just started freelance writing, not science, just general magazine writing for um, the Sunday magazine of the local newspaper, the Chronic, San Francisco Chronicle. So just uh, fun pieces for this, that magazine. And then eh, other wrote for some other publications, eventually national magazines. And I did that for about 15 years. Uh, eventually, one of them that did contact me was Discover, which is a science magazine. I asked if I wanted to do any writing for them, and I said, sure. And those were consistently, for me, the most interesting assignments and pieces to write and to report. So that kind of started my uh, my interest in reporting on science, because science happens all over the world. And also, I was really interested. I wanted to travel. So I would look for science going on in, you know, Africa, in Antarctica, in Asia, you know, just any, any way I could kind of wrangle a trip somewhere and get my expenses paid. That was what I was all about <laughs> in my 20s and 30s. And then the books, you know, the, the heyday of magazine feature writing kind of went away. But there were budgets for travel. The per word rate went down. Uh, internet magazines started showing up and the budgets were small. So Seemed like a good time to move into books. So, Did the internet ruin it for magazines? That respect. Well, there were a, there were a lot of things going on. There was also 
Yeah, in a sense, I mean, because newspapers used to make the bulk of, I mean, the San Francisco Chronicle made a lot of its money from classified advertising and Craigslist came in and that very quickly supplanted, if that's the right verb, uh, the classified ads. So uh, the, the, just the, the income that they could depend on began to dwindle as things like Craigslist and the, and the you know, being able to uh, buy and sell things online began to become much more popular. In the same, you know, the same way that personals ads used to be in newspapers and then they moved online. And then eventually uh, people began to take their news and information from websites and they would get it for free for the most part. Uh, so subscriptions dropped off. I mean, there was, all of that was going on around that time. How do you write about science if you're not a scientist? I don't mean to be glib at all, but how do you understand and, and then distill in a way that's authoritative? Well, I don't know if I ever am authoritative, but um, what you have to do is uh, essentially find scientists who are willing <laughs> to be your tutor for no compensation. <laughs> so um, I'm, I have no shame in, in saying to someone, look, I don't have a background in this science or any science, so these are going to seem like really simplistic questions for you. Uh, and please be patient with me. I may ask you to explain things, uh, to go over things, to say them in a way that is simpler. That is a disadvantage, but it's also an advantage in that I'm writing for a general audience, not a, a audience of scientists. So I'm kind of stepping in at the same place that my reader is. So um, I'm discovering it along with them. And so there's that same sense of discovery and wonder and amazement and horror, whatever it is, uh, it's all new to me. So um, I think when you're a scientist, you're a researcher and you are, the things that you get excited about are really, they're, you're really drilled down into the details. You know, you're on a molecular level or, you know, talking genetics and gene expression. And that uh, is not necessarily something that the, the general public is A, going to have the background to understand or B, that uh, doesn't, it's not as easy to capture people and get them involved in, in reading that book if they don't if they don't have a background in it. So um, it's it's an advantage in that way. It's a disadvantage in that I'm I'm not an authority and I'm always I feel like I'm always on thin ice. I'm, I may have line by line my facts right, but I don't understand the big picture because I don't I didn't study this for four years or even four weeks or sometimes four minutes. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, it's kind of a mixed blessing. You know, it seems to me that at the same time you talk about people maybe not being interested in the minutiae or the exact genetic code from here to there, uh, that basically what, what interests you would interest me, would interest the person in the next office over. You know, that, that there's, there's a basic, I think, curiosity. Yes. Uh, take CRISPR, for example. Walter Isaacson was on here recently and last book was about Jennifer Dowden and CRISPR, who's mm -hmm. you know, right, right across the bridge from you. Yes. Uh, you know, Walter is not a scientist per se, but he's incredible at making that understandable and, and making us care. Why should I care about CRISPR? You know, why, why should I, a healthy 32-year-old, care? What's it yes, going to do sure. for me? But he sure. can explain that. Once you get it, once you understand why, uh, then sort of you're more willing to accept the specifics and sort of take it in as a big picture. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I think of myself and what I do. I'm kind of a gateway drug to science. 
Like, I, I think that a lot of people come to my books not thinking of themselves as people with an interest in science. So I'm kind of slipping it in, <laughs> you know, like, ha ha, you, ha ha, you just read a book that has science in it. <laughs> but you can be funny too, right? I mean, you have a yeah. sort of funny side in your writing, quirky side that makes people chuckle. People like that. People connect to it. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that's, that's kind of how, uh, um, I think that's how you get people to read about science who don't think they're interested in science. You you entertain them, you make them care, you fascinate them. You know, you have to kind of figure out a way, like you said, like Walter Isaacson, to make to make people care, to make them understand enough to care, or or to, in, in my case, maybe entertain them or make them laugh. So some some way to make it not feel like a grind because people are. People go through high school thinking, oh, science is a grind. There's exams. There's molecules. There's stuff that I have to memorize. And so science gets this reputation as a drag, a grind, something that's difficult, something about, you know, why should I care? It's irrelevant. You know, math math in particular, people think, how does that, how does that matter to me? So, the yeah, the the goal is to get people past that so that they'll care about these things and, and ultimately care about the world around them. Speaking of caring and getting people in the door, and a lot of what I talk about, obviously because I'm a cellist, is people and classical music or people in music in general, but how how do we get people in the door? You know, without you don't need to be an expert. I always say you don't need expertise. You don't need a background. You don't need a formal training. You just need curiosity or the willingness to be put in the concert hall in the chair. I, I tell people then I think you'll really like it once you get in. Obviously, music is... is probably a lot more approachable than science is, I would imagine. But, you know, what does music do for you? Uh, music plays a role in everybody's life, Mary Roth. What's it to you? Uh, actually, music is um, its kind of essential for me when I'm really in the throes of the bulk of the writing of a book. I go to a local cafe. There's two cafes where I like the mix of what they play, and it makes me more productive it just something you know it has to be the right mix and I don't even know the names of what's being played but it makes me focus better I don't know it does something to my mindset I mean it's counterintuitive you would think having music playing uh, and often it's music with lyrics it doesn't have to be um, I don't know if there's a word for non-lyric music but it doesn't have to be that Uh, so that uh, instrumental instrumental music yeah it's instrumental sure yeah why didn't i think of that word (laughs) (laughs) thank you that's what that's what i need you for um those (laughs) technical terms like instrumental it's very technical yeah yeah so um just makes it happen i get so much more writing so you you go to a cafe and you you do all your writing at a cafe not all of it but a lot of it a lot lot of of it and i'm i'm far more productive there than I am in this quiet space, this quiet echoey space <laughs> that is my <laughs> office downtown. In Oakland. In Oakland. So you, you pack up your laptop and you sit down with a cup of coffee at a cafe yep. and, and, and you write. That's what I, yep, that's what I do. After all these years writing, you've been writing since you graduated from college. Well, why do you like writing so much? What is it about it that, that sticks with you, is it the, the changing of the subject matter? Is it the act of writing? Is it the act of expressing, of, of querying on paper? Or is it the fact that you feel there's so many things that you want to learn about and then transmit that or both? 
Yeah, the last thing. There's so many things I want to learn about. I enjoy. I mean, enjoy. I enjoy just stepping into somebody's world, a world that is utterly foreign to me, and uh, absorbing that, and then bringing home this. Just it's kind of like bringing home this pile of sticks, and then building the best, most interesting thing I can with that pile of sticks. I enjoy that challenge. Um, I don't know, writing when I'm, I mean, I both love it and hate it when I have to start a chapter. It's, it's always a day of yeah, just kind of mental grinding. And how do I start this? How do I frame it? What's going to be the best way into it? Where does that lead? But once I get past that and I get into it, it's incredibly fun and satisfying and hours go by. It's kind of a mysterious thing. I think it, uh, it it's, it's just satisfying. And books in particular, because you, with a book, unlike a magazine piece, you're not fitting into some the framework of the magazine's demographic or tone, style, uh, constraints on length. Uh, you, you are the you are the product. So you do. You, you're, this publisher has trusted you to go out and do whatever you think is the best thing to do with this book, and they set you loose. And for a couple of years, that's what you do. I mean, it's both terrifying and fun and satisfying uh, because, you, you know, in, in the case of my editor, she doesn't see it till I'm done. So I have this incredible freedom to f- go down whatever rabbit hole I want to go down. And I love going down rabbit holes. I'm happiest in a rabbit hole. <laughs> uh, that's, so it's the combination of the research and writing because if the research didn't go well, if I didn't find an interesting scene or an interesting person to spend time, spend my time with or in uh the writing will be a drag it won't go well it won't end up well so the two are just um so meshed that it's hard to separate them that is the reporting and the research and the writing that was three things the reporting slash research and the writing does it ever happen when you show up to a place and you're bright-eyed and ready to go you have your notepad and a, a nice pen full of ink and you're ready to take notes and Maybe your iPhone camera's all geared up and, and you just say to yourself after the first hour, this kind of sucks. It wasn't what I was expecting. I don't like this guy. I don't like the place. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. I have... And, and what do you do? Mm-hmm. Do you get on a plane and leave? I have done that. Um, I <laughs> One time I was supposed to write about this particular kind of storm. And the, you know those planes that fly into a hurricane? The hurricane hunters, I think they're yes. called. I'd always wanted to fly on one of those planes, but it's tough because you got to get yourself to the point where they're leaving from, and a hurricane is moving all the time, and it's you can never plan ahead. But anyway, this guy was doing this research on this kind of storm, and that sounded exciting. So, it, and it was happening near where I live. It was in Monterey, so I went down to Monterey and got on the plane. First of all, the storm didn't happen. <laughs> It's just me on a plane with some instrumentation. Secondly, the meteorologist was one of those rare scientists who could not, for the life of him, make this science accessible to to me. He had this body of knowledge that was very, very specific. I don't know even what a high pressure front is. I just, I don't know anything other than, you know, partly cloudy and <laughs> highs in the 70s. That's the extent of my meteorological knowledge. So he was frustrated and annoyed with me and it went nowhere. So I just, we got back down and I called my editor and I said, well, you know, just forget it. 
just forget it. No story. That kind of thing. Yeah, that happens. It's rare. It really is rare. Uh, you know, and that's why you, you know, you have some communication with somebody before you go and step into their world. Do you have a little, I mean, not, 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 I don't know what these people look like or what their lab look like, looks like, but I've, I've emailed with them. They kind of get what I'm after. And I'm, I'm very clear with the person I'm hoping to interview. I'm, I'm clear in that I need a scene. I need something happening. Uh, you know, it, 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 what will this look like? What will it be like? So I'm trying to get a little bit of a preview in my head because I'm also, I'm too optimistic. I tend to get, I'm like, wow, this would be so cool. Like I once did a story for Discover. It was about the ergonomics of airplane seats. So I'm like, that'd be so cool. It's this, this lab full of seats where people like just sit in airplane seats. Okay, that's not very interesting. But for some reason, I was like, that's really weird and cool. And I got there and <laughs> it's a lot of people sitting in a chair for three or four hours. And I was a subject and I was like, this is a little bit silly, but I mean, I did write the piece. I, you know, I tried to get across the inherent silliness and surrealness of this endeavor, but I, you know, it's like a part of me was going, well, what did you think? <laughs> it's a study on airplane seats. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes I, I, my expectations are a little off. What I think about is the intersection of arts and sciences and and the humanities. And I, I like how it all works together. I, in fact, I, I guess that you do that sort of by, by definition, by being a, a non-scientist who writes about science. You're sort of bridging those two worlds, right? Well, why, why do you think that's important? Why is it important that they, that they coexist and not be separated? I, I'm a, a big proponent of people who, who can meld and mix the two oh me too i think it's important especially in an era in which science is something people don't trust or don't believe it's important to get out of the echo chamber you know i mean if you're if you're a scientist and you only communicate what you're doing to your peers um you know you do a disservice to science and because you, you to have somebody who's willing to speak with enthusiasm to an outsider like myself. And then for me in turn to take that to readers, um, I think that's how you build interest and trust in science itself. And I think that's just so important in this era of science denial and climate change and all the other crap going on in our world. Um, it, I, uh, yeah, I think it's, I agree, very important. There's a huge fire. Well, actually there's a few right up, up the road from you. Uh, do you think about that a lot? Do you do you ever want to write about wildfires? How how are they changing? How are they changing your part of California? I've I've spoken to people who've lived in the Bay Area for decades, and they said up till, up till very recently, we didn't see smoke here on a regular basis. We didn't really think about wildfire season, and suddenly here it is, expanding year by year. True. Yeah. It's uh, in the past three years, it's become something that happens actually two fire seasons and they are reliably causing multiple days where the air is not safe for you to go outside. That never used to be the case. And everybody I know has an air purifier in their home and a little uh, device that measures the AQI. We all know what an AQI is. We didn't know that before. Yeah. <laughs> we now know. Air quality uh, index. Exactly. For those. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so we've become conversant 
in this language of disaster. And it's um, I, I all over the Bay Area, even though the fires are not right here, uh, people talk about, you know, is it time to leave this state? You know, I, oh, t- two years in a row, my husband and I have canceled backpacking trips because there's either been a fire nearby or the smoke is bad enough that it made no sense to go. So one of the things people love about California is the the Sierras and the opportunities to go backpacking and to be in deep wilderness. And now it's beginning to feel like that isn't an option or you're always kind of risking bad air. Because the times when it's good to go backpacking, uh, you know, spring and fall when you have like clear skies and sun and I mean, those, those are, and, you know, school is back in session, so the trails aren't quite as crowded. That's fire season. So um, it's a huge deal here now. What do you think about it? Are you, are you considering changing something about how you live? Are you deeply pessimistic? Are you, does, does, it, does it weigh on you? Does it weigh on someone who lives with science? Do you think about it? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I, uh, I think about it. I think about it a great deal, particularly during fire season, which is um, earlier every year. Um, I think about, um, should we not have this tree by our house because it's a fire risk? Uh, Should we cancel that trip because it's likely to be smoky? Um, What ways can we get ready for when they start rationing water? Should we plant um, different plants in the yard? Well, we've already done that. Uh, people don't have lawns anymore. Uh, it's, it's, we've had already had water rationing, and I'm sure it's going to start soon. Uh, so it's a part of everyday life in California. And, and I mean, we're not to the point where we're moving yet, but we do think that we're stupid not to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm a little, I don't know if I'm pessimistic or realistic. Where would you move? I, I just out of curiosity, where, where, where would you move? That's the question. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I got my... Uh, I got my Irish citizenship about a year ago, and that's really? a fantasy. Yeah, my, through my grandmother. Happen? Through my grandmother, she was born in Ireland, and Ireland is very generous with handing out citizenship. Well, so is New Hampshire. Maybe you should return to New Hampshire, the place place of your birth. Perhaps I should. <laughs> my brother well, talks about wanting to move back to Hanover. You know, I hear from people all the time. Uh, that I, I'm not here, you know, full time. I spend summers in the Upper Valley, and I, I come back for as many holidays and Thanksgiving in in the Upper Valley in New Hampshire is is like nowhere else. It's the absolute best place to have Thanksgiving and all that. But I run into people all the time who are desperate to move back to the Upper Valley of all, all different jobs, all different ages. But but they've they've really uh, felt a draw. I, I can see why. I can see why. No, I can too. And yeah, I, yeah, I come back there. I travel up with a friend of mine from Hanover sometimes. She lives in Connecticut now, but just to, to get together, we'll just take a road trip up to Hanover. I'm actually, I was born in Etna. But uh, we'll, we'll just, for nostalgia's sake, and also because it's beautiful. And it feels, it's something, you know, it's, it's, it's embedded in me in some weird way. I drive along, even driving along, what is it, 91, Highway 91, the, the road yeah. we take up to... It just, I just, the, the way the granite was cut into on the, to make way for the road, you know, the road, the, the freeway, just the, the look of the granite and the trees, even when they're bare, you know, that's just, it's, it's, it's so familiar to me and so kind of weirdly comforting. It just feels like home, even though California has been my home since I was 21 or two. Yeah. 
I love trees when they're bare. I was just, I do a lot of cycling and I was just on a long ride around Vermont last week and I was telling someone, I, I can't wait till the trees are bare because I love being able to see through. Yeah, you can see so many more birds as you can see so much more. And also just, you know, at twilight, the way a bare tree looks against that kind of, you know, the blue of the sky at the gloaming, there's nothing like it with the moon shining through. I know, I have felt kind of caged yeah. the past year and a half. I mean, I like where I live and I'm, you know, I, I, I love hanging out with my husband and my family, but I feel every now and then I just think I got to get out of here. I want to go f- get on a plane and go somewhere far, far away where I, I, I want to be surprised again by the world. Yeah. Do you want to be in a place that you don't know? Do you want to be in a place that overwhelms you with the foreignness? I do. Oh, absolutely. All the time. Yes. The more foreign, the better. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's been, it hasn't been very foreign the past year and a half. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A lot of people, I think, have, have gotten to know their, their houses better than they ever thought. They, they've gotten to know the, the little corner of molding and the, the <laughs> screws on the lock on the guest bathroom door, you know, things that they, they yeah. really didn't think they'd ever be studying. They studied. <laughs> no, I know. I remember it, yeah, even just last week, um, there was a something that was magneted to the refrigerator that was gone. And I was like, oh, did you remove, it was one of the grandkids' drawings. And I was like, what happened to Gussie's little sun print there that she had? Oh, yeah, it got, it got wet. I took it down. I was like, oh, okay. Just noticed it was gone. <laughs> like, just the tiniest little detail. I Aren't had. you tired of that? I'm so tired of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, look. To, in, so in, to, sick of it. <laughs> Until we um, meet in a foreign land, uh, I'll, I'll have this book with me, which is entertaining and also interesting, an odd look at some of the behavior of some interesting creatures. Fuzz, when nature breaks the law. Mary Roach, it's great to talk to you. I look forward to the next time. Hey, me too. Thank you so much, Daniel. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk. The original theme music is by Ronald Barkham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mose and Doug Christian is executive producer. We invite you to subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. You can support us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash talkingbeats. And be sure to check us out on social media. We'll see you next time on Talking Beats with Daniel Elchuk.